Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast with Pastor Joseph Gibson at Cranberry Community Church. We hope God speaks to your heart through today's message. Lord, I thank you for your presence, and I pray, Lord, that you speak this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Today we're going to be wrapping up the series, Unlocking the Parables. It's our last uh, week in the series. I've uh, really enjoyed it. I hope you have. Next week, my family and I are going to be on vacation in Tennessee, and Brian Flinchbaugh uh, is going to be bringing the word, so uh, be here next week for that. Um, But today's parable is one of Jesus' final parables that that he teaches, uh, and it's appropriately so, as we'll see. We find it in Matthew chapter 25. We're going to go ahead and read the whole parable beginning in verse 1. Jesus is speaking and he says, At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took, took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was, coming, uh, was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us, both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell the oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were still on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with them to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, truly, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Now if we hold this parable up to every other parable that precedes it in the Gospel of Matthew, this parable, parable, Jesus says something slightly different that he never says leading up to this point. This parable falls under the category of the kingdom parables. We went over one of these a few weeks ago when we did the parable of the yeast and the mustard seed. And Jesus told many, many of these kingdom parables. The reason for that is because uh, understanding the kingdom of God, uh, you, you can't just understand it. You can't grasp it with one teaching. So Jesus would give you bits and pieces here and there, and you're supposed to put them all together. And when you do, you start to get a glimpse of this kingdom of God that he's talking about. Uh, Because it's so vast. Uh, And and he's saying to his disciples and to his audience and, and, and here to us to help us understand the kingdom of God. He's given us all these parables. uh, And again, when he gives us this parable, he changes one thing about it. He had never said this before. And it's an important change. So what I want to do quickly is I want to look at the kingdom parables leading up to this moment in Matthew chapter 25. Jesus begins every one of the kingdom parables preceding this with these words. The kingdom of heaven is like. And then he gives the parable and he starts by saying the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed a seed. And then he goes into the next one. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And the next one, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast. 
And then he says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And then he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a fine pearl. And then he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net let down into a lake. And then he says, the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house. Then he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king settling accounts. Then he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner and his vineyard. And then he says, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a king preparing a wedding banquet for his son. But all of them start with the same phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. Until we get to Matthew chapter 25, and then he changes one thing about it. Now he says, the kingdom of heaven will be like. So for all of the, these, these kingdom parables, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like this, this, and this. These are the realities of the kingdom of God that they lived in and the realities of the kingdom of God that we still live in. So when Jesus talks about the parable of the weeds, he's giving the obstacles that stand in our way the, to the kingdom of God. When Jesus talks about the mustard seed and when he talks about... Uh, um, the yeast in, in the dough, he, he's talking about the growth of the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God expands and spreads. And then when he's talking about uh, the, the, the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl, he's talking about the value of the kingdom of God and, and the worth and how we should pursue the kingdom of God. And he's saying, hey, those are the realities that we live in now. But he gets to this kingdom or, or this parable and he says, this is not the reality of the moment, but at that time, he says, it will be the reality. If you look at Matthew 25, 1, he starts it out that way. He says, at that time, the kingdom of God will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, that time that he's referring to is described to them in the previous chapter, chapter 24. What we find in chapter 24 of Matthew is a pretty substantial shift in the teachings of Jesus Christ. Uh, because as recently as chapter 20, Jesus is operating in the same vein of ministry that we're kind of used to. He's healing the sick and he's healing blind men and he's teaching in various parables. Uh, in chapter 22 uh, is when the expert in the law comes to test him and says, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor. Very consistent with the teachings of Christ to that point. In chapter 23, Jesus is warning against the... the uh, the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Uh, again, very consistent with his ministry to that point. But when we get to chapter 24, what we find is an abrupt shift takes place. Now, this shift is not a shift that goes against his prior teachings. It's just one that he's never really gone this into detail uh, before. And what we find in Matthew 24 uh, Jesus is coming back from Jerusalem. He's just gone in and flipped all the tables and now they're leaving and he, he looks back at all the buildings in Jerusalem and he says, I'm telling you, not one stone will remain upon another. And the disciples ask him a question which leads to the shift. So they ask the question in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 3. It says, as Jesus was sitting down on the Mount of Olives, the disciples said to him, came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And I love how Jesus starts out. He says, uh, watch out that no one deceives you. And he says, you will hear of, or, or I'm sorry, he says, many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will de deceive many. 
You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are just the beginning of the birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray each other and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. And from there, Jesus goes into the abomination of desolation uh, that the book of Daniel refers to. And it's becoming clear that Jesus is talking about the time of his return. He says things like, at that time, the Son of Man will appear like lightning, that the, the trumpet will sound and the elect will be gathered. The Son of Man will appear on the clouds of hev heaven. Uh, he says things like, there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and the other left. And there will be two women at the mill, and one will be taken and the other left. And then Jesus adds, regarding that day, no one knows when it's coming, but there will be signs and you'll know that it's near. He says, if anybody tells you the day of his return, they're a false teacher. But if you look at the surrounding signs of that, of that day in that culture, you'll know that it's near. And from there, Jesus goes into the parable and he says, at that time, when all of these things are taking place, when you're entering into that season, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins. Now, before we, we dive into the specifics of that parable, what I want to talk about is that time, that day as Jesus refers to it, because the, the context of this entire parable surrounds that day. It surrounds that time that is coming. And that is actually, a, it, it presents a challenge in and of itself. And I want to show you why that presents a challenge. Uh, there's an organization called Lifeway Research, and they conduct various polls uh, among churches and, and just, you know, random polls. And uh, they asked the question uh, a few years ago, I think this was 2019 or 2020, they, they asked believers, so Christians, they said, uh, what is your belief concerning the return of Jesus Christ? And uh, they divided it up. I have a, a chart here for you. Uh, so the 36% the there, 36% of believers uh, think that Jesus is coming back pre-tribulation. So there's going to be a, a season of tribulation on the earth. 36% of Christians say Jesus is going to rapture his church before that takes place. 4% of believers think that it's going to be mid-tribulation, that right there in the middle, three and a half years, Jesus raptures his church. Uh, another 18% believe it's going to be after the tribulation, that the church is going to endure the tribulation the, that season, and then Jesus will rapture the church. 13% um, say it's none of those three, uh, and they have their own views. Then another 4% say they're unsure. It should probably be a whole lot more than 4% that are unsure, but 4% say they're unsure, and that leaves us with a, a big 25% block there. What, what is that 25% block of Christianity's beliefs? Go ahead, Greg. It's they don't believe he's coming at all. 25% of the church says Jesus 
he's just not coming back. That, that that's a, a figurative language in the Bible, and he's not actually coming back. And you know, they actually did a follow-up poll to this where they, they, they pulled 450 sermons off of the internet, and they examined and studied 450 sermons across America, across denominations, and what they discovered is about 2% of them mentioned anything to do with the end times, anything prophetic, anything to do with the return of Christ. What that means is even as we're standing here this morning, 98 8% of churches in America are saying nothing prophetic, nothing about the return of Christ, nothing about uh, uh, the, the second coming, nothing about the end times at all. The reason for this is because they don't want to be labeled radical or because we, we don't have a full grasp on everything that's going to take place. There are various reasons for this, but the question that, the, that this uh, Lifeway research posed is, is it possible that because the pulpits this morning are avoiding the topic of the second coming, we're raising up a, a generation of Christians who don't believe it's even going to happen because they grew up in a church that never told them about it. And church, if we're going to understand even the context of this parable, it starts with that knowledge that Jesus is coming back. And if we look around us, what we find is not only is he coming back, he's coming back soon. And we have to establish that in our hearts. Jesus is literally coming back. Jesus said in John chapter 14, he said, My father's house has many rooms, and if that weren't so... I would have told you. He said, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me so that you may be where I am. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, uh, call of God, and the dead in Christ will raise first. After that, we who are still alive will be, uh, and are left will be caught up together with, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And then he says, encourage one another with this. So the word of God promises that Jesus Christ will return for his bride, the church. Now Jesus said about that day and about that hour, no one knows. But he said, if you look at the surrounding times, you'll know when it's getting close. And if we do that today, what we find is all the signs are pointing to the reality that church, we're getting close. Jesus said, when that time arrives, a time that we may very well be entering into if we're not already living in it, he says, the kingdom of heaven at that time will be like ten virgins who took out their lamps to meet the, uh, the bridegroom. Now, I want to make a quick disclaimer before we dive into the specifics of this parable. Uh, the specifics uh, of who represents who, what, what the uh, virgins represent all this, there's a lot of disagreement across the church. Uh, of who is who and what is what. There is disagreement. So uh, I just want you to know uh, that's the truth, but the overarching or overarching uh, reality, the overarching meaning of this parable is pretty, pretty agreed upon. So the specifics, there's disagreement, but the broad meaning, pretty much everyone agrees, and we're going to get to that a broad meaning. But with that disclaimer, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you what I believe the specifics of this parable mean. I'm going to show you how I got there biblically, uh, and you're allowed to disagree with me, and you can still come back. How about that? So, 
uh, with that disclaimer out of the way, we're going to dive in. Jesus said at that time in verse one, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. I don't think there's much disagreement over this first fact that Jesus is the bridegroom. Uh, in Matthew 9, when John's disciples asked Jesus, hey, why don't your, your disciples fast? Jesus said, why would they fast when the bridegroom is with them? Jesus even identified himself as the bridegroom. Now, when Jesus, uh, when his disciples are asking him about the end of the age, what Jesus gives is the image of a wedding. Now, the disciples would be making a connection to a Galilean wedding. We're also supposed to be making a connection to another wedding that the Bible talks about in Revelation chapter 19, where Jesus is not symbolically the groom. He is literally the groom. Beginning in verse 6, uh, John is writing and he says, I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to, given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. So we're reading this parable about the, these five wise virgins who, who are prepared and make it to the wedding. But then there are five foolish virgins who don't. And we should always have this at the forefront of our mind, that there is an actual wedding that we have been invited to, and some will make it there, some will not. But we also need to remember that in the context that Jesus was speaking to his disciples, they weren't placing it there yet. You know, John came with the, the wedding supper of the Lamb uh, years after this took place. So what the disciples are connecting this to is actually a wedding in their culture. Now, Jesus, we have to remember, was a Galilean, uh, and we believe that every one of his disciples were Galileans. We're not sure about Judas, but we believe they were all Galileans. So what's taking place is Jesus is talking about a wedding, and they're picturing not just a Jewish wedding, but a Galilean wedding. And what's, what's interesting about Galilean weddings is archaeologists have found recent documents that talk about the specifics of a Galilean wedding as opposed to just, just Jewish cultural weddings. And, and it's amazing. And we can see Jesus playing on this reality of Galilean weddings. Galilean weddings. Uh, there were really four steps to the Galilean wedding. The first was the arrangement of the, the marriage. This was usually arranged by the father of the bride and the father of the groom. And if the match was found to be mutually beneficial, then they would discuss the conditions of the marriage. They would discuss the price of the bride. They would discuss the dowry to be paid, things like that. And if everything was agreed upon, they would move forward with the second custom of the wedding, which was the betrothal ceremony. Now, one of the things they would do in preparation for the betrothal ceremony is in preparation, they would each be baptized separately. Uh, and I, I think that's so cool because I think of Matthew chapter three, when Jesus went to be baptized and John said, the Bible says that John tried to talk him out of it and said, no, 
uh, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus said, this has to be done to fulfill all righteousness. Now, John's baptism, the Bible says, was a baptism of repentance. Jesus had no reason to repent. He had no sin to repent of. So I just wonder, as I study this more and more, if fulfilling all righteousness in baptism was in preparation for a wedding with his bride, the church, which is why we get baptized. So Jesus got baptized, and we have the wedding. It's, it's, it's awesome. All right. So back to the betrothal ceremony. What we find is the bride and the bridegroom here would exchange vows. They would promise to be married. And the groom would take a, a cup of wine. And he would take a drink of wine. And uh, it's called the cup of joy. And he would then offer it to his bride. And this is one of the differences in Galilean weddings. Uh, in typical Jewish culture, the bride had no choice. Uh, she was not allowed to reject the husband that her father had chosen. But in Galilean weddings, this was the moment where she would choose whether I'm receiving him as my husband or not. If she took a drink of the wine, the cup of joy, that was her way of accepting the marriage, of receiving her husband, or she had the choice to reject the wine and not receive her husband, which again makes me think of the ordinance of communion when we take communion together and we're, we're receiving uh, uh, Jesus Christ. Now, assuming that she drank the cup of wine, the groom would then say, and this is really cool, he would say to her, I will not drink again from this cup of the vine until I do it with you in my father's house. And it was a commitment that he made to his wife. If she drank the wine, he would say, I'm not going to drink it again until we're drinking it together, this cup of joy in my father's house. Now, with that in mind, remember Matthew 26, verse 27, when Jesus is taking his final supper with his disciples and he looks at them and it says he took the cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them saying drink from it all of you this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins then watch this I tell you I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom Jesus is painting the picture of a Galilean wedding and he's taking the, the wine and he takes a drink. And the Bible says he passes it to all of his disciples for them to take a drink. And when they have now accepted the betrothal, he says, until the wedding feast, I will not drink from it again. But he's pointing to that wedding feast again. Now, the betrothal wasn't the wedding itself, but uh, once you were betrothed, you were considered married. To separate from that point, you would have to get legally divorced. Uh, if you remember Joseph and Mary, the Bible says they were just betrothed to be married. And when she became pregnant, Joseph was going to divorce her. Because legally, even though they were only betrothed to be married, you're basically married and you have to get divorced at that point. So once you are betrothed, uh, you're basically married. After the betrothal ceremony, we come to what's called the preparation period. And this is more of our focus this morning for a couple of different reasons. This is the period the most prominent in our parable. And this is also the period that we live in today. Uh, during the preparation period, the groom would leave the bride. Uh, and this is, this is what they did in weddings. You can look it up. The, the groom, they would become betrothed. He would leave the bride, go back to his father's house. Usually he would build onto his father's house a room. And when he was prepared, he was preparing a place to bring his bride and she knew that in approximately one year, he would return for his bride and take her to his father's house. 
And we're reminded of that again in John 14, where he said, uh, there are many rooms in my father's house, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back for you, and I'm going to take you there with me. Now, on the other hand, the bride would spend this time preparing herself. She would be collecting material for her wedding garments, uh, and she would be making her own wedding dress. And then this is so interesting. Uh, in Galilean weddings, when the groom was fully prepared to go get his bride, it didn't matter. Because in Galilean weddings, it wasn't up to the groom. The groom didn't make the decision to go get his bride. He had to wait for his father to say, go get your bride. In Matthew chapter 24, I just want to remind you, verse 36, Jesus said these words, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels or heaven, nor the son, but only the father. He's painting the picture of the wedding and saying, even when I am dying to come get my church, I am waiting on the father to say, go get your bride. Uh, towards the end of a, uh, the year after the betrothal, the bride would be waiting expectantly uh, every day for her groom to come get her. And most sources that I found this week said that she would even sleep in her wedding dress because she wanted to be prepared at all times. Uh, and those who were invited to the wedding would also have to be ready to go. Now, this included having plenty of oil for their lamps. The reason for this is because most wedding ceremonies would begin at night. The, the husband, the groom, would come get his, his wife to be in the middle of the night. Uh, as soon as the father said, son, go get your bride, and he would come through, walking through the town, and they would blow the shofar, and they would begin shouting, behold, the bridegroom comes. Now, remember, the entire wedding party was supposed to be waiting and expecting and, and just waiting on the edge of their seats for the groom to come with oil in their lamps, prepared to go for the groom to arrive anytime, and then they would carry the bride to the father's house, and those who were prepared for the wedding feast would go as well. And that's the final custom of the wedding, is the wedding feast. And these feasts would last sometimes for seven full days, and once the doors were closed to that feast, the doors were closed. Uh, they didn't let people in late, uh, and it would have been seen as disrespectful to the bride and the groom for you to arrive late. Uh, but if we go back to the parable, and we read the parable in this context of a Galilean wedding, we'll read it one more time. It says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. Remember, he's supposed to be gone a year, but in the parable they're saying he was probably gone a little longer than they expected. So they all became drowsy and they fell asleep. And at midnight, because they would start at midnight... The cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come, and get, uh, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on the way there to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. 
Later the other virgin, others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Now again, the specifics of what all of these characters and, and uh, symbols mean in the story, uh, they're debated. Uh, but I'm going to give you my interpretation. The Bible says that the groom has taken longer than they expected to return. And the difference between the wise and the foolish virgins uh, is they were not, the, the foolish were not prepared. They have no oil in their lamps. Oil, usually in the Bible, is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. So you have five lamps that are filled with the Holy Spirit. You have five that are not. Now, this is what I believe is going on here. The five uh, who were unfaithful, uh, the five who were foolish, I should, should say, I believe that these are believers who over the course of time have lost their faith. You don't have to agree with that. In fact, there are entire denominations that would throw me out of the church right now. But I believe that what's taking place here is there are people who once walked with Christ, but in time have lost their faith. Now, part of the reason I believe that is what we find is there are 10 virgins and they all look exactly the same. There are just 10 versions, the same people. They all have lamps, but five of them still have oil. Five of them run out of oil. Now, part of the reason that I believe this interpretation is because the interpretation of the parable is founded in Matthew 24. So if we go back to Matthew 24, this is what it says in verse 10. At that time, many will turn away from the faith. I believe that's the five foolish virgins. They have turned away from the faith. And a couple verses later, it says, because of the increase of wickedness, uh, wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. The five foolish virgins, uh, virgins whose love has grown cold, the five wise who stand firm until the end and were saved. Uh, something else that I, I notice as I'm studying this, and specifically this part of the passage, is when Jesus looks at these uh, five foolish virgins at the end, what he says to them uh, is uh, in verse 11 and 12, Greg, uh, later the others came and said, Lord, Lord, open the door. And he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. And this is almost the same as something he had said before. Except again, he changes just a little bit up. Uh, Greg in verse, uh, or the next slide there, uh, Previously in his ministry, he had said, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Uh, when they would come and say, Lord, Lord, we've cast out demons in your name and we've done miracles in your name. He says, I never knew you. But now we come to these, uh, what I believe are the five foolish virgins. And instead of saying, I never knew you, he just says, I don't know you. It's not that I never knew you. It's that I no longer know you. Now, uh, Again, the specifics of this uh, parable are debated, but the, the grand scheme of things is not. The big picture here is simply this. Be prepared. Um, Jesus ends this parable in verse 13 just saying, Therefore, because of all of this, keep watch. You do not know the day or the hour. See, uh, you might be pre-trib or post-trib or mid-trib or no-trib. Uh, that's not the point this morning. 
The point is as believers, we should be prepared. Our lamps should be filled. We should be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when Paul talked about being filled with the Holy Spirit, he said continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. The other uh, part of this is we should have a sense of urgency when it comes to sharing the gospel. If we believe that Jesus is returning and returning soon, then we have an urgency to tell people about the love of Christ, about the gospel message of Jesus Christ. The central theme of this entire parable is be prepared for that day. Uh, Renee, can you come? But I wanted to show you this uh, in, in the book of Revelation, I think it's chapter 19. Uh, go ahead and throw that up. Uh, it says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the, of the lamb has come. And look at this. And his bride has made herself ready. What's the problem with the five foolish virgins? They didn't make themselves ready for the second coming. What are we, what's, what's the wise, the five wise? They made themselves ready. Then we get to the book of Revelation and they are celebrating. Why? Because the bride has made herself ready. Church, make yourself ready for the coming of Christ. If that means you need to get right with God, don't wait until tomorrow. Get right today. Be ready for the coming of Christ. Could you guys stand this morning? Father, I pray that when we leave this place today, we leave with a sense of urgency to share your gospel, God. That we leave with a sense of urgency to turn our lives around if need be, to repent and, and to, to be filled with your spirit. I pray as Renee leads us that you would just speak to us and speak to our hearts. Church, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and just repeat these words after me. Holy Spirit, speak to my heart. And as Renee leads, uh, leads us, I just encourage you to listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit. Today, I pray your presence goes with us, that you pour us out, Lord. You use us, Lord, as ambassadors of your gospel. quick thing before I let you go. Um, speaking on that subject of the, the possibility of being a foolish virgin and, and losing your salvation, I, I meant to clarify just for clarification's sake, I don't think it happens by accident. Uh, I don't think you'll be surprised that it happens. If you are walking with Christ uh, and that happens, it's because you made a decision I no longer believe. Uh, and unfortunately, Emily and I have some friends that have uh, they, they taught at a Christian school and they walked with God and they believed and some things happened and they said, you know what, I'm done. I no longer believe. I think that's the foolish virgin. I, I don't think it happens by accident. So uh, that's, it's not something to be afraid of, even though the Bible says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But uh, uh, that's that. Hey, we're going to throw that slide on the screen of the baby one more time, uh, just in case you didn't get a, that address earlier and we're going to leave it on the screen. Uh, and uh, let's just be a blessing to them. Be a blessing to Brian next week and come cheer him on uh, because he said that he's going to go twice as long as I did and it's going to be awesome. 
Thank you for listening to this week's message. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for a new message every single week. And as always, from all of us at Cranberry Community Church, may God bless you.